being in the hospital with something that's traumatic brought me right back to being in the hospital after the rape. The smells, the sound, everything, everything. And once I was there, I couldn't come out of the trigger. It was like one constant panic the entire time I was there. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. National Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. Nearly one in five women in the United States have been raped at some time in their lives, and in 42% of those cases, it happened before age 18. Today's episode explores the question, how can sexual assault impact a woman in pregnancy and childbirth? Our guest is Lindsay Gibson, who experienced rape at age 16. In her 20s and 30s, she went on to give birth to four children one of whom was born still. Lindsay is the author of Just Be, How My Stillborn Son Taught Me to Surrender. This is Lindsay's story of healing from the emotional and physical trauma of rape through her own grief and how each of her four births brought her one step closer to freedom from her past. My name is Lindsay Gibson and I am the mother of four beautiful children. My daughter Lillian, who's 13 years old. My daughter Layla, who is almost five years old. She'll be five next week. And our daughter Luna, who's 18 months old. And our son Joseph, who was born still, so he shines his light from heaven all day on us every day. And I am married to my husband Jason, who's from Ireland with a brogue and all. (laughs) And he makes me blush still every day. My story begins at 16 years old, right after my mother and I moved to a new town. I was trying to make friends, and I had found some, and one girl in particular decided to hang out with me outside of school. I was really excited, yet something in me kept saying, not not a good choice, but being only a teenager, I'm not listening to my intuition and my gut. After hanging out with her for the day, she wanted me to go into the city and go to a nightclub, which of course I'm not allowed to do, and I said, no, you need to bring me home. Well, she needed to make a stop first on the way home, and I didn't know what for, and she said, wait in the car. And it was a very bad section of town, and I wasn't comfortable, and after about five to ten minutes, I'm wondering, where is she? And I didn't feel safe, so I got out of the car, and I decided I'm going to go find her and tell her we need to go. I went into this rundown apartment building that she was in, and right away when I opened the door, I heard her voice. And so I marched upstairs, and I went into this apartment, and she was standing there with a very tall, muscular-looking man. I didn't know what she was doing. I didn't know what they were talking about. And she said, oh, oh, Lindsay, okay, hold on one second. And that's the first time I was face-to-face with my rapist. He had asked, what are you girls up to? She explained, well, we're going, I'm going to a nightclub. I'm just going to bring her home. Oh, why don't you go ahead is what he told her. And I'll bring Lindsay home. 
And before I could even register or process, you know, what was going on, she left and he was able to lock the door and now I am trapped inside of this apartment with a man I don't know or what he was planning on doing. He attacked me. He raped me. He beat me up. He forced alcohol, uh, vodka actually, down my throat as this game to, made him laugh. And after, after, the, after the rape, I, there was one point where I was able to, because he had stopped pinning me down, and he had his back turned, and I jumped up, and I grabbed whatever clothes I could, and I ran into his bedroom, because I didn't know where else to go. And I shut the door, and I put the clothes on. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have any of that. I didn't know what I was going to do <laughs> from that point. And I saw a phone, and I called my mother. And I said, you need to come get me. There's a Krausers near, nearby, which is like a convenience store. And I hung up. And for the first time that day, I listened to my instinct, which said, run. I wasn't sure if he was going to intercept or what. I just ran. I didn't even think. And he let me go. Minutes later, my mom pulled up like alongside me on the road. And I got in shaking, screaming, go. So we get home. Now she's panicked. My mother's a single mom. She has no husband to go home to help her through this. And she's trying to figure out what to do. Luckily, my, my older brother was home from college. And I didn't want them to see my bruises or anything, and so I went straight into the bathroom. I took a bath, which after a rape, you're not supposed to take a bath. All your evidence gets washed away. Shortly after falling asleep later, I woke up screaming out of a nightmare. And at that point, it signaled my mom, we need to go to the hospital. Something happened to my daughter. We need, we need help. But when I go in, now we're under big lights. My mother can see my bruises. Everything starts to come to light as we're in these big fluorescent hospital lights. And they separated me from my mom because they wanted to question, is she the one abusing me? I'm under 18. And I didn't know that. I just kept saying, I want my mom. I'm not talking until I have my mom. And I went silent. I was so scared that I, because I didn't have her, and now they're all staring at me, doctor after doctors coming, psychiatrists were coming in, the police were coming in, social workers were coming in, nobody, I felt like nobody was handling me the right way, but after that point, I made a decision, shut it down. I don't want to think about that night anymore. And that's how I carried on for 13 years as post-traumatic stress disorder crept in and I didn't realize or recognize that it was post-traumatic stress disorder with the nightmares, the flashbacks. Within months, I completely forgot the event. I put it in a part of my mind and I shut the door and I never wanted to look back. At what point did the story come out for the first time? When did you start to talk about it? The very first time I actually told my story, but not in detail, was with my husband, Jason, when I met him. You know, here I am, just a college girl, but he, he can tell I was hiding something. So eventually I told him something happened to me at 16, and then that was the first time I ever said anything close to what had happened. How old were you at that point? I was 21. So what happened? You met your husband in college. You fell in love. Yeah. What happened next? 
Yes, I met Jason, we found love, and we found out we were pregnant with Lillian 10 months into our relationship. We were definitely shocked. We were not prepared, but we were happy. And a part of me knew, despite all of the struggle with PTSD and trying to be a college student and all that, I knew it was going to be okay. But a lot of my past did not hit me, like I was just saying, until I was walking into my first obstetrician appointment while pregnant. We got inside and he took charge because I was frozen. I was having my first trigger with something that that was presently happening. And I didn't know what to do. And he recognized that. He went right to the receptionist and asked for a female-only doctor. So tell us a little bit about what it was like, this first pregnancy, to be processing this story for the first time and since it happened? I think I went into protection mode. I honed in on the denial that, that I had been on more and more because I felt like I needed to protect my child from how I was feeling. So in other words, I kind of amped up ignoring it. So I turned that part off. Once I got into the birth room, it was a whole, it was almost a domino effect of triggers that started to erupt. They had to induce me. I was almost two weeks late and I got a cholestasis and my blood pressure shot through the roof. So they sent me right in. The birth was not flowing like it should have been and it, it was long and they had to have a lot of intervention. And it was when the intervention started to happen that the triggers came. I was good with just my midwives, but when they wanted to speed things up and break my water and, and you know, scaring me, now I'm feeling out of control. I didn't even let my mother tie her shoes at one point. I, was, I needed her next to me, holding me, because I was all of a sudden gripped with terror and fear, not just because of the birth, but this extreme um, just terror that something was go- I was going to die or something was going to happen to me. And my midwives actually did not even come into the room until it was time to push. They, the doctors sort of took over, doctors that I didn't know, I had never met before, which was a whole nother trigger, male doctors. I had it in my chart, I don't want male doctors. And you still had male doctors? Yes. How did you feel when male doctors walked in the room? I felt overpowered. I felt unheard, but I was in such panic that I was literally shaking the bed. And I felt like I was in literally in the fight or flight mode. It was either fight them or run. I wanted to run, but I couldn't. I'm in the middle of giving birth. So Lillian came into the world and she was surprisingly big, 11 pounds, four ounces and 24 inches long. When the nurse weighed Lillian, I heard her go, oh my goodness, like she was so shocked. And she turned to me and she said, well done, because wow. <laughs> Lillian was just a big, beautiful, full of rolls. I loved it. I love those chunky babies. Yeah. And today she's taller than me at 5'9", at 13. Wow. <laughs> and after they checked Lillian, they brought her back in to me and later on, later on my chest to try to feed and... I was triggered yet again, but I had no idea why. And I did what I did best, which was ignore it and push it aside. It was a struggle. I was not able to successfully breastfeed her like I wanted 
the nurse that came in and saw me, I was struggling and I was, my mom tried to help me as much as possible with the, with the latch. And then I had a nurse come in and tell me, you're young. Don't even worry about breastfeeding. Carry on with yourself. You got to finish college. Literally said that to me. And I was like, Oh, and so being young, of course, I, I listened to her and I thought, oh, you're right. I have too much to do. I have to go back to school. I can't breastfeed. I can't do that. At, at sexual assault survivors have a a trust with their body that 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 they lose yeah. and forgiveness of the, yourself and things like that. So, breastfeeding is hard for a lot of women. Birthing is hard. All well, those things and that out of control experience yeah. can trigger you, but also the it's a sexual experience. Right. It's an intimate anything exp- in that space. Anything, anything in this space. Mm-hmm. The birth itself, there was so much intervention. I, I went into panic during it. So I had come off of that right into this supposed to be beautiful breastfeeding and bonding experience with my very first baby. It's not the best way to begin with with your child, but nobody was recognizing that, no one. So before we get into your next pregnancy, what purpose did uh, the birth of Lillian serve in your journey toward healing? Prior to getting pregnant with her, the way that I coped with PTSD was alcohol. I drank a lot. I partied a lot. I worked a lot. I kept myself extremely busy to the point where it was very unhealthy. I was unhealthy. Having Lillian paused me. It slowed me down. It stopped me from drinking. I never went back. And she served a very, very good purpose, even though it was in an inconvenient time. Having read your book, what became so apparent was you couldn't be in a quiet place. You couldn't just be alone with your thoughts. You stopped drinking. You stopped distracting yourself. You stopped partying. And now life got quiet and slow, as it does with a baby. Yes. So you went on to have a second child, and can you tell us how that second pregnancy and second birth played into this experience? Yes. Seven years later, we decided we're ready for baby number two, and we got pregnant very easily, and we were happy and excited. It was different because uh, this pregnancy was planned, and I was so happy to finally be doing this again. But... Shortly into finding out we were pregnant, I got really sick. I, of course, didn't know what was happening, and it wasn't until I passed out on the bathroom floor and my mom had to come rushing over and said, we're going to the hospital. I was about seven weeks pregnant that we went rushing in, and after they hooked me to IVs and I just could not stop getting sick, that the term hyperemesis gravidarum was told to me. I never heard that term before. Here's another out-of-control experience with the body that triggered me all over again. In case you don't know what hyperemesis gravidarum is, it is extreme nausea and vomiting through a pregnancy. It can last all the way to the end for some women. And it did for me with uh, two out of the four pregnancies, which was my second and third. I had nurses with home care, a PIP line, uh, they even started talking about a feeding tube at one point because I could not stop getting sick with, with the second pregnancy. Uh, that out-of-control experience with my body made me feel like I failed, and it, it just started going from there. Failure, I can't do this, anger, and all of these extreme emotions were coming out. It robbed me. I just started, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't 
be present. My husband kept saying to me over and over, at the end, we're going to be holding this baby. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be okay. You're doing a great job. All, but all of those words and all of that comfort from him was going in one ear and out the other because I was already so triggered and I didn't have any coping skills to get myself out. Unfortunately, that pregnancy ended at 26 weeks, and we had found out at 20 weeks that he was a boy, and we named him Joseph after my husband's uncle and grandfather, actually. So he was our only son. And the day that I lost him, I had woken up with this feeling that something was wrong. I thought it was me maybe my blood pressure, you know, something was off. And then I thought, okay, good, the nurse is coming soon and I'll ask her. Well, she came and she took my blood pressure, all my vitals. She said, you're, you're okay, you're okay. I'm like, okay. And I took a nap and I woke up like abruptly. Uh, I started to poke my belly and he didn't respond. And I, I tried not to be alarmed. Um, you know, I tried not to panic. And I called their office. I said, no, I need to come in. Something is wrong. So I went in, and that's how they found out there was no heartbeat. So my mother intuition was on point with that. And I'm opened to this new pain, grief. I had spent years in PTSD. Now I'm grieving over my son. But here's, here's the difference. I love my son. And so that love is what started opening the doors to what had happened to me in the past. And it was almost like I, I was coming up against the final wall. I had to either face it, make a choice to live, or give up. I had to birth him, though. I had to get through that experience first. I had to say hello and goodbye to my son all in one day. And being in the hospital with something that's traumatic brought me right back to being in the hospital after the rape. The smells, the sound everything, everything. And once I was there, I couldn't come out of the trigger. It was like one constant panic the entire time I was there. So I'm having constant anxiety. I'm having panic. I'm trying to get a grip. I'm trying to also be there for my husband because he's grieving too. A lot of times men get ignored (laughs) in this whole process. And I wanted to be there for him, but I couldn't. And I got up at one point, I got up and went into the bathroom. And for the very first time, I, when I I splashed my face and I I was shaking and I was holding onto the sink and I was just trying to get a grip, like get a grip. You you need to try to stay as calm as you can. But how do you do that when you're giving birth to your dead baby? I mean, no one can stay calm. And I looked at myself and I saw myself differently and it was almost as if I was looking at the 16 year old version of myself and it shocked me and the first thing I said to Jason is get an, get somebody in here I'm, 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 I can't breathe I can't breathe and he of course the first thing he does is trying to help me breathe and the nurses came in um, they repeatedly kept asking me do you want medicine we can we can take this anxiety away we can give you whatever you want to help you through this I kept saying no I didn't want any medication because I wanted to remember this time with with Joseph. I didn't want to be numbed out. The problem was my body wasn't registering that it was in labor. Three days passed, and I and I still was he was not here yet. And 
At this point, they had to call a larger hospital, so they called Yale to see what do we do. Now, of course, I wasn't listening. I'm just, I didn't want to birth him. I didn't want to let him go. And so I was okay being there because I did not want to leave that hospital without him. They, they called Yale and they called Bridgeport Hospital. Bridgeport was the one that got back to them. So I was transferred to Bridgeport Hospital and I was told that I was going to go into surgery, not a C-section because they didn't want to risk doing a C-section for my future pregnancies. So they had what's called a, a D&E, not a DNC, a D&E. And there was one doctor in the state who was very experienced and she was in Bridgeport. And she was the very first doctor who recognized my trauma and spoke to me like a person. And when they put me onto the, the surgery table, she held her, her finger, I'll never forget this, she held her finger up to silence everybody. And she leaned over me and she said, your son is safe now, I wanna make you safe. And that, I will never forget that moment. And then I was asleep, maybe seconds later, because had, they had already inserted the anesthesia. So I will forever remember that moment. It was the, it was so, it meant so much to me because it made me feel like I was heard. I felt like I blinked and then woke up and the surgery was over, but it was silent. There was no baby in my arms. I was in the recovery and just sat there in complete shock that that had just happened. And eight months later, we were pregnant with our daughter, Layla. And so I thought, okay, if I, if I get pregnant and I do this again, it's going to take the grief away because now I'll have my baby. And maybe all of, all of these emotions that I'm feeling, the anger, uh, the panic, all these things that came back, maybe that'll just go away too. I always looked for outside things to help me with my pain instead of looking in. I was really like dedicated to having more control in my birth. I felt like I could. And when we got to the end of Layla's pregnancy, I think after not processing my feelings and living in this like denial warrior state that I was in, I was so weak by the end of it that I couldn't I couldn't stand up for myself. They had done a a measure on her. Now, without realizing my first child was 11 pounds, four ounces, they measured almost 13 pounds. And because I was so weak, I, I just didn't care anymore. I just said, fine. And I gave in, and now I'm out of control again. I don't feel empowered. I don't feel in control with this. But I gave in because I just wanted to hold her. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to lose her. So there was that fear. And... It's, it's hard. When you're, when you're bullied down from a doctor, it's really hard to stand up for yourself when you're that weak. The C-section was scheduled for the next day, and I went home, and I mean, I was nervous for another surgery, but I was okay. I was calm, at least. And mm -hmm. at 4 a.m., I woke up, and the contractions were intense. So how interesting, because you had agreed to a surgical birth at this point, and now you woke up at 4 a.m. in labor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, oh, okay, here we go. And I just continued letting the contractions come. I didn't even call. I was like, and I showed up and uh, they were about every five minutes at that point and they were pretty strong and I was beginning to dilate and I just, I didn't want anything to happen to her. That kept, that was on the forefront of my mind. I just want 
my baby alive. So I said, fine, let's do the surgery. And I just, I just gave into it. And I, I, I wish I can go back to that moment, but, um, but you, I can't. You do it differently. I wish I was stronger with my instincts. I wish I um, spoke up more. I wish, I wish a lot of things, but I just. Well, it's easy to wish you had done things differently now that you have confirmation that she was born a healthy baby. But back then you were a mom who had lost her previous baby. Right. I mean, it's a whole different story. It's understandable completely that you relinquished a little earlier than you might have otherwise. And how did it go? The surgery itself was actually fine. They played they played Irish music just to make me laugh, and my husband came in and they danced to this Irish music, which made me laugh. It actually the team in there was great. I had no issues with them. Uh, the anesthesiologist was so funny. It, it was actually fine. The the whole surgery itself was very straightforward. Uh, and I, I do want to ask you one question, if yeah. you don't mind. You took hypnobirthing. Yes. And. What doesn't get addressed a lot is, did you feel you were able to use your hypnobirthing tools through a surgical birth? Yes, and I did. How? Your voice came back to me. And I just remember the breath work that we practice. And that was the only, so I tuned out. But the biggest thing that my doctor, and he was a male doctor, by the way, I, I hmm. he came around and he, he said, put your, put your head right here. And he hugged me like a father would hug his daughter. And I just melted into him. And I said, and I whispered, thank you. And he said, just breathe. And then I was like, okay, Cynthia taught me this. And so I started to breathe and I kind of got into a zone, just relaxed. And it was great. (laughs) I feel like his own paternal instinct, he had this wave of affection for you, you know, and I feel like he just had a paternal instinct. And that's so beautiful because of your position on male doctors before, which was so understandable and justifiable even without having had a history of assault. Right. But there is that space for the right soul in the room who he, can treat you. And he was the doctor I didn't initially like in the in the practice. We had two male doctors, and he was the one I was like, uh, I don't know about him. He ended up being the best doctor through that whole thing. And he does have four children, I found out later. So he's very fatherly, and I'll always appreciate that. Surgery went great, uh, no issues, and it was so intense that here I am, finally have my ne- my next baby. She's alive, she's pink, she's healthy, everything's good, and not just the pregnancy, but also the eight months before having her came, cr- it's almost like it came crashing down at that one, it was like, hi, 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 here she is, and then boom, I crashed. And I wasn't having any flashbacks or anything like that, but I... I went from such an elated, oh my God, she's alive, she's breathing, everything's good, to this, oh, reality, all the pain that I was ignoring all this time, oh, here we are again. It was so drastic, and once we were in the postpartum room, I I actually turned away from Layla, and he was ready to hand her to me to, to nurse, she was starting to fuss, and I said, I don't want to hold her, and he didn't know what to do, and he did the right thing by not questioning me. He just gave me some time to do what I needed to do. And I rolled over, I actually fell asleep. I don't know what he did. I woke up, he had no shirt on, he was doing skin to skin and she was asleep. And so, but I knew she needed to nurse and I knew she needed, you know, we couldn't hold her off anymore. I have to ask you though, what, so uh, that, that culmination of emotions or whatever was starting to brew in you, Mm -hmm. was it the stillbirth? Was it the rape? 
Did you know? Did you identify? I had no idea. Okay. I just did I didn't know. Did it no turn clue. into a guilt? Like she's here and I get to love her and hold her and he's not and Joseph is not. Was I, it a, did it turn into a guilt? The guilt was there with me through the whole pregnancy. I I felt a lot of anger towards her and what you know, not as if it was her fault, but why are you here and your brother is not? I wanted both of them. It's not like I didn't, it's not like I wanted to get rid of her. I just, I wanted all, I wanted all my children here. And so that, that guilt was never, it was something as a, a trauma survivor that I always felt. See, I felt guilty for going into that apartment building. I felt like I knew better, you know, and so I I felt like it was my fault because of that. So I always have that shame and guilt with me. It was a part of me almost, and I didn't know how to shake it. And even though there was so much struggle, it was that very dark day when she was eight weeks old that woke me. it woke me up to the point where I had to finally, after all of this, make a choice, choose life or give up. It was the first day I'm alone with her after weeks of really deep, dark postpartum depression. She woke up from a nap, and she was crying. She was ready to to feed, of course. She's eight weeks old. And right when I heard her crying, I started to get panic. I had had a panic attack like that before, but not in a very long time. And panic attacks are very scary. So... I said, okay, she's just an innocent baby. Get a grip is what I kept telling myself. And I quickly texted my husband and I said, you need to come home is all I said. And I put the phone down, went to her nursery and she's screaming at this point. And between the crying and my dog had started to bark because she sensed what was going on. She can hear Layla crying, so she's barking and barking. And I could hear the barking. And when you're in a panic attack, you feel like you're in a tunnel. And so I heard Layla, I heard Layla, and I heard my dog, and I heard traffic outside, all in this like tunnel. And it was all at once. And I and I was outside of her bedroom door, and I just sat down. And I was shaking, and I said, I can't hold her. I'm gonna. I felt like I was gonna drop her if I had gone in there. And some mother strength in me got me back up, and I said, I said, just feed her and put her down. And I picked her up. I put her to my breast in the rocking chair, but I sat robotic, not staring at her, not relaxing into it. Just put her there. She did. She did start nursing. She was starving, and staring straight ahead. My heart was pounding so fast, and I'm like, "What? What is going on?" I looked down at her. Finally, after about maybe five minutes. And she was looking at me, eyes wide open, big blue eyes, looking right at me. And she reached her hand up. She just put her hand on my cheek. And I started to cry. And I realized I never let go that way. I had spent over a decade being in denial and ignoring all my pain. And I I hated crying because I felt like if I started, I would never stop. And so I started to cry and cry and cry. The tears were falling on poor Layla. She stayed very still through the whole, she kept nursing through that moment and her hand, that connection, just showing me it's okay. I didn't realize how much time passed, but Jason wasn't working far away anyway. And he had, he obviously got that text, probably panicked and he came home and I, she finally fell back asleep 
now he's walking in, seeing me nursing. He's probably thinking, what? Why is she panicking? Why did she text me? But he saw I was crying, and he knew I was suffering postpartum. We put Layla back down in her crib, and she just continued sleeping. And we left, and I just lost it. I can't really even describe it. I think the first thing that came out of my mouth was something like, I can't do this anymore. I can't pretend anymore. He knew, and he didn't have to ask anything else. And he, I was screaming. I was crying. I said, I, all the, they're back. I remember every single detail of that night. And he, he looked down at me, and he said, and you're safe. And that's all I needed to see, that it was safe to feel it was safe to process. It was safe to let go. That was the first day that I chose life. And even though I was far from being healed or um, you know, knowing what to do next, I knew that it was going to be okay. I just didn't know how. Did you begin to talk about your story with people at that point? Yes. I got a therapist that I liked. I had to find a f- interview a few before I found one that I was comfortable with, and it's okay to do that. That's important to do that. Yes, just like it's okay to do that with your doctor. I found one. She's amazing, and she helped me through the grief, the rape, just everything. And I realized the more I started telling my story, the more I wanted to tell my story. And the more I didn't want, I didn't want other women to feel this way. I didn't want... And whether it's a similar story to mine, and pain is pain. I, you know, tell your story and tell it again. And if someone doesn't listen, say it again to someone who will. And that it's okay if someone doesn't listen because maybe they're not ready. And that's okay because we're all at different points in our life. And so it just became this release. And fin- finally I realized what I was seeing in Joseph's birth room was that grief was allowing me to surrender and that it was okay. You know, the only way out of it is through it. That's right. At that point, we, we didn't have a, any plans on having another child. All I knew was I needed to heal, and I was ready. And uh, besides the therapist, I started getting into uh, somatic therapy, body healing, nutrition. Uh, I started meeting all kinds of wonderful alternative practitioners who, who specialized in so many different areas. I started to learn about mental health and nutrition and, and why that's important to strengthen your body um, because I needed the strength to cope with these feelings that were coming through and the processing can really wear you down. It's a journey. It's not a step-by-step. It's a you take a next step and then you see what is going to work for the next step after that. Once I really incorporated my body into it and learning how to forgive my body, it was a game changer for me. You know, natural living and alternative healing and all these, uh, really just connecting the mind-body, I started to realize it's it's not just a life choice. It was, it was about giving my body and my mind the opportunity to help me process something that it's, we are equipped with at birth. Our bodies and our mind, we are able to handle these things that happen, but I was so beaten down from so many years of ignoring it that I just, you know, I I didn't realize that. Well, you had been in a place of disconnect. That's right. For all of those years, and when you start integrating the connection, yes, that's how you are able to move forward. To reintegrate it and be okay with it. None of our stories are the same, so therefore none of our healing 
is going to ever be the same. And that's why there's so many different wonderful healing modalities out there. So you had almost three years yep. before you felt ready to have another child. Yes, my husband and I knew we had one more baby in there, and I was ready. And so I, because of my history, of course, I was high risk or categorized as high risk, but I was okay. And so I t- took walks with my girls. Like I felt like it was just different. What I noticed with Luna was that when I, hold, when I held her and I did eye contact with her, when I did skin to skin, and I held her and I smelled her and I enjoyed those moments, I was actually able to ha- smell her newborn smell. I was actually able to, I can remember everything from her newborn days, everything. I felt so in control with her. And that empowered me. And empowerment is critical with a rape survivor. I trusted myself as a mom. I trusted my body. Love heals everything. A psychologist once said there's two things we need in life, being authentic and attachment. And not just attachment in the early days. Attachment is lifetime. Even as adults, we need human attachment. One of the things as a rape survivor I always said was, I never want to have daughters. I want all boys. I don't want to think about my daughter being in this big, scary world. So I looked up at the sky. I remember doing this even before I met Jay. And I said, don't give me any daughters. I don't want them. And, you know, I use God, you know, the higher power laughed. Here's three. Exactly. And, wow. and it has been the best thing for me to have these girls. I am meant to be a girl mom. And Joseph was there to show me, to show me as a male energy moving through me, what I was ignoring. So... Can you comment on giving birth to your healthy little bouncing Layla? <laughs> yeah. And that misconception, maybe within yourself, but certainly the people around you, like, oh, phew, thank God Lindsay now had another healthy baby. Okay, we can all move on now. I actually got a lot of those comments. Oh, like they actually articulated those things out loud to you? From whether friends, family, or, or on social media, that your arms are full. Oh, you must be so happy. Uh, you know, all those things. And they were well-intentioned. I'm not, it's not, nobody meet, Nobody knows what to say to a lost mom because it's such an intimate loss. And it's one that a lot of people don't, can't relate to. You know, you bury your grandparents, but that's expected in life. But you're not supposed to bury your child. And for me, <laughs> it was just always a simple answer. It was, I have four children. I don't have three, and then I've had losses because I've had other miscarriages too. But Joseph, I bonded with him. You know, I, I felt him. He was a part of me for 26 weeks, and uh, Layla didn't replace him, and no other child ever will. I'll always want him too. I'm always going to wish I, he was here as well with, with his crazy three sisters. So when I when I answer that to people, though, it sort of helps them to step back and realize that uh, you know, infant loss is something that's not talked about enough. Is that why you wrote your book? That is exactly why I wrote my book, but also wrote my book because not only is writing extremely cathartic, it's healing, it's a wonderful activity to do. I've always loved writing. But also, uh, not just for Joseph, but for the many women out there who have suffered sexual assault 
and the silence and to help them to break that silence because every year you know in april we celebrate sexual assault month and, and take back the night and helping these survivors to speak their story and so i wanted my first book to be my story and my memoir so i can be voice to somebody who's ready to do the same if you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. Donna, it's so nice that you, as Lindsay's mom, that you came here today to support her. And what was this like for you? I mean, you, you've been by her side, the closest person to her pretty much through this entire experience. What do you want to say? So I think what I would say as a mother of a daughter who was harmed in this way at a very young age is, is to try to connect to your own feelings and get the help you might need to go through that because there is such thing as secondary trauma and to understand that and how you process that so that you can come forward to your child with more compassion with listening ears, with encouragement. It was December when she finally told me everything that happened. And I think had I been in a place where I reached out and got my own help right away because I was scared and I was a single mom, um, that I might have been able to help her quicker to get that story out and go to the police, which we eventually did and told the story there. So I, I think in all of it, the, the um, encouragement I would have for mothers who have daughters that have gone through this is to help yourself so you can help your daughter. I think that's the biggest thing you can do. And then continue to know, understand what trauma is and how long and post-traumatic stress disorder which she had and how long that takes to unwind and to continue to help yourself to help her um, through that process. Yeah.